Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, page 718 in our church Bibles. Mark chapter 12, and in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 18. Mark 12, verse 18, page 718 and 19 in the church Bibles. It's a nice sound to hear, isn't it? So early in the morning. And as you're turning there, I I think I'm going to remind ourselves of this fact a lot. Since more people in the history of the world are reading the Bible, and so many of them are new to the Bible because the, the world isn't in one sense as religious as it used to be. So people are coming to the Bible, and as you think about it, when they come to the Gospels, what they're finding out is that the religious people, most of them are the enemies of Christ, and the sinners, the, the tax collectors, prostitutes, the wine bibbers, they are the ones that actually are coming to Christ. And I think that's fundamentally important as we approach the Gospel and begin to think through these things, especially in this, um, to me, just a wonderful chapter 12 in Mark's Gospel. All right, verse 18. Here they are, then then the Sadducees, another religious group, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too at the resurrection. Whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Implication on earth. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise... They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels, the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Amen. May God have mercy on this morning and us this morning and give us help as we Think through these things. Uh, let's pray together, asking for such help. Father, with our Bibles open before us, we, we have no one else whom we may go for help but you. Therefore, we pray that the Holy Spirit would do the work in order that we might understand, that we would delight in your truth, be changed by it, converted, animated for your glory, and therein, Father, worship you, adore you, obey you. And certainly tell others about you. So to that end, for Jesus' sake, as we just purposely abide in you, Christ, and let your word abide in us now, holding to the promise of John 15, that there's fruit there to be bore. So for Jesus' sake, will you please, Father, give what is needed as these these verses are preached. Amen. Amen. Well, Some of you might know this, in human warfare, and by the way, we thank God for the day when all wars will end, right? We we long for the day when weapons of war will be put away. Nevertheless, in human warfare, a major tactic has frequently been to attack the enemy in waves, striking them before they have time or opportunity to recover and defend. 
And often what is true in human warfare is equally true in spiritual warfare. And we see this in Mark's gospel as Jesus himself is being attacked with wave after wave of essentially trick questions. So these are not questions which are given because they honestly want an answer. Rather, the questions are given, verse 13 of chapter 12, if your Bible is open, to catch Jesus in his words. And remember, we learned last time that that phrase translates into compile a list of grievances. And I think you understand this. In order to justify the removal of Jesus, they need to have a list of the supposed wrongs of Jesus. And in order to produce that list, come their questions. For example, again, if your Bible is open, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, the chief priest and the teachers of the law, religious people question Jesus on authority. Mark chapter 12, verse 13, more religious people, the Pharisees at least, and the Herodians come with their question on taxes. That was last week. And now in chapter 12, verse 18, come the Sadducees with their question on the resurrection. As Mark writes, hey, uh, they say there is no resurrection. Okay, now who are these Sadducees? Well, as we said there, and Mark said, they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Life now is all they believe there was. Also, they held to the first five books of the Old Testament as authoritative. Only those five books. That would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They also did not believe that God was sovereign over the affairs of people. They were very, very conservative. They were from the high street. They were affluent, and they were um, intellectuals. And while the Pharisees never feared the judgment of God, but only the judgment of people, you see that there, chapter 12, verse 12, that's the Pharisees. The Sadducees really couldn't care less about either. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus would write, the Sadducees did not have the support of the masses, They enjoyed only the confidence of the wealthy, and they considered it a virtue to argue with their teachers. Hmm. So it's one of those kinds, okay? And here, they are unmistakably ridiculing Jesus by ridiculing the idea of the resurrection. And the whole foundation of their question, and and here we get to our first point, the question, the whole foundation of their question lies with the provision which God made in the Old Testament. They allude to that in verse 19. But you can read about that provision in Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning around verse 5, and what is called the Leveret Law. And the Leveret Community Law, which God gave to Israel, ancient Israel, said this. When a husband died, without leaving children particularly a son, right? Provision was to be made, which began with her husband's brother taking the widow in marriage, okay? The brother of a deceased man is obligated to marry his brother's wife, and the whole aim of that is to have children. Okay, why? Well, think with me, to keep the family name and subsequent generations alive, to keep the family property maintained, and so that the widow would be protected and be provided for. In other words, again, verse 19, she remarries the brother of her deceased husband, keep her husband's name going through the birth, hopefully of a son, therein his honor is held, his name, the honor of his name is held, property protected, and the widow, of course, is cared for. However, by the time of the New Testament, by the time of Mark's writing, the practice had fallen largely out of practice which means this question is not really a really care question. It's more kind of like academic. 
suppose this and suppose that. And in light of that, verse 20, the question is, okay, there are seven brothers. You see that there. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one marries. Verse 2, the same thing happens. And this goes on five more times. Now, if you're thinking, the better question here might be, why doesn't anyone investigate this woman, right? (laughs) Seven out of seven husbands dead. Elderberry wine, you know the story? Arsenic, right? There could be a problem with this lady. Okay, but on the other end of that stick, the poor woman, right? Seven marriages, really? God help her. Sorry, I just needed to come out. But you see, that's the point. To the Sadducees, this was the ha, 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 he, he, he question. Hey, Jesus, whose wife is she going to be at the resurrection? Okay, so you think one heaven, one woman, seven men, and the chaos that would unfold when they meet in the sky, right? One husband, honey, I loved you first. The other, honey, I loved you best. Honey, I loved you more. One husband, we ate ribs together, honey. Come on, right? It's like one of those uh, country western songs. You're just missing a truck, a dog, a can of beer, and a, you know, a barroom brawl. That's the point. Jesus, how are you going to sort this out? By the way, there are 14 million widows in the United States as of the last census. And the argument which is used here is one is, which is known as reducto ad absurdum. The reduction to the absurd. Now listen carefully. This is what it is. It's taking a basic belief which is known to be true and then attempting to reduce it to a level that is absolutely absurd so that that truth can be challenged using something, something as a mechanism. So here it's the story of one wife and seven brothers making the implications of that story seemingly able to refute the belief because the supposed conclusion seems absolutely absurd or ridiculous. So basically, they try to give Jesus a knot that he cannot untie. So, so again, think, they're at the resurrection. There's seven boys. There's one lady. Which one? And then think about the chaos that it would ensue. And I'm not trying to be silly. I mean, it's like some kind of daytime talk show. People wandering around heaven. Who's my wife? Who's my husband? Right? Take your hands off her. Watch it, buddy. Marsha. Really? <laughs> That's the picture that they're trying to give him. Give. And by the way, the Sadducees, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, they think they're clever. They think Jesus has basically two options. Verse 19, option number one, hold to the law of Moses, first five books, which as far as they understood, said there was no resurrection. Option number two would be to set aside the law of Moses in order to propagate their belief in a resurrection since apparently it isn't in the Bible as they understood it. Either way, here we are again. They think that they have Jesus trapped. That's the question. If there is a resurrection, then who's her husband in heaven? Secondly, then the answer, you can see this in verse uh, 24. Jesus replied, I think, is a brilliant reply. It's theological and it's intellectual. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? In other words, you do not know who God is, and therefore you do not know what God is capable of doing. If you like, you haven't been reading your Bible carefully, and therefore you only have a partial 
picture of God. And because you have a partial picture of God, you do not know God fully or you do not know God experientially. You don't know his power. And you see, I want you to know that the, the word there, know, in verse 24, you do not know the scriptures or you don't, and you do not know the power of God. The Greek word there is super telling. First, the sentence itself is written in what is called the present active participle. That's important. And this is why I mention it. It means this. Based on their past actions, which have led them to this right now moment of question and answers with Jesus, their current lines of thinking because of their past actions, verse 27, you see it there, badly mistaken. That's the first thing. Second thing, the meaning of that word to know is the Greek word oida. You do not oida. You do not know the Bible and you do not know God's power. You have, and this is what it means, you have no scope or range with God. You do not have a real experience with God. You do not treasure God as God, which means you can't recognize God. Nor can you recognize his goodness and his power. Hence, you are blind. And in this case, you are blind to the fact that there is a resurrection of the dead. Okay? Again, they do not carefully understand the scripture. They don't know the scripture. And they have no experiential knowledge of the power of God. In effect, they are not walking with God. Well, sure, you know, they do religious stuff. All the externals. That's easy. Come and go. Sit and sing. Stand. Listen. Whatever. But they did not let God's power and God's truth Change them because they never knew experientially the supernatural aspect of God, God's power, they never experienced. Now, I do this purposely. That's why I always warn you of moralistic preaching versus gospel preaching. Moralistic preaching is people power. You try harder. Gospel power is I've changed you. Now you go glory in your weakness in order that my power, my power may rest on you because that's the only way my power will rest on you. And you see, there's some part of me that wishes I could get in a time machine, jump into that situation, ask the Sadducees, isn't there someone that you want to live forever? Isn't isn't there someone that you know that they want someone to live forever? Don't you want the resurrection to be true? Don't you? They don't. Well, why not? They just dried up. You see, I told you they were intellectuals. And I told you they were wealthy, materialistic. And we know that intellectualism is not a sin. We know that riches, having it, is not a sin. But having those things with no real and vital relationship with God, is an affliction. No experience with God is frankly, in that case, destroying them. Intellectualism outside the scope of God is Ecclesiastes 1.18. With much wisdom comes sorrow, much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I mean, just think of the number of, of philosophers who gifted people who just took their lives because they had no reference and no reverence for God. Huxley, Seneca, Socrates on some level. That's intellectualism without God. What's the use? Materialism can have a lot of definitions. One is when a person is not in awe of God, they will be in awe of physical things, created things, manufactured things, and they will spend and give themselves to them. They'll try to replace God, the creator, with his creation. And in the end, they end up like Solomon, who said, remember at the end of his life, 
What's the use? This is all empty. This is vain. This hurts. Life hurts this way. Now, why do I say that? Well, one, because the Bible says it. Two, because I'm a sinner. I have personal experience which underpins this truth, having been confronted with the emptiness, if you would, of just binge sinning. I know what that's like. And three, as Jesus continues his answer in verse 25, you see it there? He is distinguishing between the now of earth and the then of the new heaven and the new earth, saying, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels. And you see, this tells me that one reason why they would not want the resurrection to be true is because why would they want their life to continue on if it was just going to be more of the same? Right? Why would they do that? Those of you who enjoy reading, you ought to pick up uh, The Time Machine and uh, Zardoz. It's kind of a weird book, but it, the point is, is this is what man does. He writes about the future, the natural implications of where life is headed with no God, and this is it, numb, lifeless, just blobs of flesh, eat, drink, lay around, sleep, go from here to there, nothing to achieve, no great cause to defend, just ease and tranquility, living like you're already dead, knowing nothing of God's power, which animates life and gives it an unbreakable, unshakable truth and purpose, right? The passion, the energy, the, the, the dynamism of God, it's all not there. Rabbi Zacharias, I am absolutely convinced that meaningless does not come from being weary of pain. Meaningless comes from being weary of pleasure. And that is why we find ourselves empty of meaning with our pantries full. So Jesus counters that by telling them the resurrection is not just the continuation of life, but it is the transformation and it is the perfection of life. The the things which bind us here, one of which is marriage, are not going to bind us there in heaven. In other words, life in heaven will certainly have elements of the now, but it's going to be profoundly different. Listen to Leon Morris. Human relationships are largely a matter of place and time. They are therefore bound to be different when neither of these apply. In heaven, we are no longer bound by place and we're no longer bound by time. And it's very hard for us to conceive of a reality with no time and no space because everything that happens to us now is bound by time and bound by place. Right? What time is it and where are we going? When do we leave? When is he going to be done? Where should we go? All that stuff. However, eternity will change all that. And that's what Jesus is revealing. By the way, I've spoken with a person who, who asked about heaven and we had that conversation and, and she told me, well, I would be so bored sitting around in heaven forever. What would we do forever? What is there to do forever? And you see, what this person was doing was taking their life as it was now and they were trying to project it on a timeless scale with no reverence to God, no reference to God, and no understanding of his word. And that is exactly what these Sadducees were doing. They take an earthly situation, an absurd one at that, and they try to project it into eternity to underpin their assumption. And that is wrong, Jesus says. Your whole way of thinking, verse 27b, is badly mistaken. 
And another brilliant way Jesus tells the Sadducees this is again, verse 25. He uses the word when. When the dead are raised. For Jesus, this is not open for debate. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And you know why this is so brilliant? Because the Sadducees also did not believe in angels or demons in any kind of spiritual reality at all. They ruled out the spiritual life altogether because they were just so worldly. Consequently, what Jesus does is he tells them the resurrected life is going to be an order of existence which you cannot comprehend. Meaning all your assumptions here are just crippling you. The assumption they gave Jesus and the seven husbands, you know, for one wife's story created for them the kind of resurrection they didn't believe in. But they were flawed in their understanding. Jesus says, in essence, I don't believe in that kind of resurrection either. And he sets them straight by telling them the revealed truth. Truth that they would never know unless they were told from God's Son about what happens to marriage on the other side of earth, marriage in heaven. And you know, in our evangelism, It's very helpful to understand the assumptions that people are making about Christianity, about the gospel, about Jesus, God, and so on. And so if they're determined to reject Christ or put Jesus on hold, let's find out what Christ they're actually rejecting, right? What about God they're actually rejecting? Because very often people have worked out what they think about the gospel and they think about Christ and they think about God and they think about the church You know, if God exists, then he must be like this. Or if Jesus is unique, then he must be like that. However, quite often what people are assuming and then rejecting is nothing like Jesus, is nothing like God, nothing like the gospel, nothing like the church at all. And what they're actually rejecting is either their homegrown assumptions or the opinions or the homegrown opinions at that of others, things they might pick up someplace and they try to make this cocktail of theology or perhaps some, you know, ignorant person, that's Titus 1, who is saying things they ought not to say, and they're doing it for dishonest gain, and the people listen, and they don't have the mind to discern that is true and that is not true, and so they just fall for it. They are, verse 24, they're in error because they don't know the scripture, and they don't know, they have no experience with God's power. So if someone tells you, I don't believe in God, a good response would be, tell me the kind of God you don't believe in. Describe that God to me. And if they reject the gospel, we we could ask, what assumptions are you making about the good news? Why is the good news bad news to you? What are you rejecting? That's the first answer. Before we get to the second answer, as you think about the fact that marriage will not be part of heaven, some of you you might be stunned by that right now. But Jesus is not saying that, that marriage is somehow inadequate here. Or, Lord willing, when we get to heaven, we'll not be able to recognize each other. Right? After the resurrection, Jesus was recognizable. Excuse me. The times that Jesus was unrecognizable always had a gospel purpose to it. Right? Think Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. He veiled himself purposely. He had a lesson to teach before he revealed himself. So knowing that Jesus Christ was raised and was recognizable, in heaven we will be recognizable. So you should say to your wives and your husbands, okay, look, I may not be married in that way that I am on earth. But, you know, at least I can run around and look for you in heaven, right? That's okay. I mean, haven't you had that talk? 
We're not going to, probably not going to go at the same time, honey. Right? And so you'll be there and I'll be here and who knows what will happen. So we may not be married in heaven, but if I find you in heaven, I bet we can sit together in the services, right? We can hold hands. Nothing wrong with that. And, and isn't it amazing that in at least the past three and a half decades of, of popular Christianity, the concerns of marriage has basically overrun everything. And yet, here we are in the Gospels, working through it chapter by chapter, and Jesus says like two things. One about divorce, and the other, uh, by the way, it's not going to be part of heaven. I was thinking in my studies about the time, and sorry, you just have to hear this, I was with my wife at the grocery store, and I was being me, which is a terrible thing. I was asking two million questions, uh, changing the subject every two seconds, and you know, trying to figure out a way how we could hold hands while she stopped, which is impossible. So what she does in her loving way is she stops, and she looks at me. I kind of think she got my face, but you know, we'll leave that as it is. She looks at me, and this is what she says. Joe, I need you to be quiet. <laughs> I need you to stop talking, and I need you to push the cart, right? So if, you, if you're familiar with Star Wars, she was the Jedi mind trick, you know, I need you to stop talking, I need to stop talking, I need you to be quiet, I need to be quiet, I need you to push the cart, I need to push the cart. And that's what I did. And you can imagine the impact that it had on me because, it, you know, it's not like it happened two weeks and five days and about 16 hours ago, Right? <laughs> Who's, who's counting? <laughs> so I thought in my head, I'm like, baby, you're going to be sorry because this arrangement is going to end on the other side of heaven. You won't have me this way. But because I've been trained so well, after I said that in my mind, I also said that in my mind, she's probably saying right now because of that, praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? We've got to think about these things and at least have those conversations. Okay, what about the angels? We are like the angels. Angels, Are we going to be sexless in heaven? No, of course not. Jesus is not saying we are sexless in heaven, nor that we become angels because the former can't be supported and the latter is not true. The, the point here of Jesus using this is that angels are not bound by time and they are not subject to decline, right? They're not bound by time. They're not subject to decline, nor will we be in heaven. That's the power of God, <laughs> Praise God, no decline. No longer slaves to time. It's beautiful. That's the resurrection. Second answer Jesus gives, still under the second heading, has to do with the scriptures. Verse 26, now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so here Jesus' confidence is in the word of God. He's like, come on, everybody, let's open up our Bible. It's going to be fine. Let's open it up and read the very part of the scripture that you Sadducees view as inspired, as true, right? And if it teaches the resurrection, then the point of Jesus is proved. Well, guess what? He pulls the story from the book of Exodus, it's in the first five books of the Bible, which they said were true, inspired from God. And how very irritating it must have been for these Sadducees, who as conservative as they were and as intellectual they claimed to be, you know, real Bible thumpers, 
They get duped. Jesus quotes from the part of the scripture they claim to be as inspired. So so think of it this way. Okay, you guys began this little question and answer time reading from the Bible, your Bible. So I'm going to end this little question and answer time by reading from the Bible, your Bible. Don't you read your Bible? I mean, their toes are probably curling up in their shoes right now. Don't you read your texts? And all Jesus does is he, he just expounds the scripture. Verse 26, the account of the bush. Remember, they don't have chapters and verses then. They don't have personal copies of the Bible. So he gave the story a heading. Everybody would know that story. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and in just a few words, Jesus demonstrates something absolutely crucial about truth. Now listen carefully. They've missed this aspect of what Jesus is trying to say. Truth about God. And this is what it is. Truth about God is not something that you just discover or define for yourself. And then just try to project that truth on God. I mean, by nature, we do this all the time. I mean, what is Jesus like? What is the church like? What should a pastor be? What should an elder be? And we think here, but we don't think as good here. That's us by nature. No, truth about God is revealed so that even the experiences that we may have with God, they all need to be decided by the truth which God gives in his word. Okay, how is God revealing himself? Here, it is as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's saying this to Moses. And of course, at the time of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had left this world. They had died. But God didn't say, you see it there, I was their God, but I am their God. In other words, God is still their God because their existence is still continuing. Meaning the very part of the Old Testament you guys hold to, it tells you, There's a resurrection. There is life after death. And the Sadducees, as smart as they were, they missed that. The very scripture they were convinced was true. And you see, the challenge for them and the challenge for everyone else is, are you going to let your thinking be shaped and led by this revelation, or are you going to believe yourself and your assumptions on God, on Christ, and so on? I mean, Jesus is clearly saying the only way we can understand the truth, the only way we can understand God and ourselves, and specifically hear the resurrection, is by God's revelation. We have to be told this. So we need God's word. God's word, listen carefully, God's word, the Bible, corrects everything we think we know, everything we've heard, or for those of us who've been whispered to in the night, God's word measures and corrects all our assumptions. And Jesus uses the word to help these men see what they need to see. Listen to C.F. Lewis. If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean you, are no, you have no ideas about God. It will mean you have a lot of wrong ideas about God. Bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For a great number of ideas about God that that are trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones the real theologians tried centuries ago and they rejected. You see? And Jesus shows us that. Final point, question. I, I wish I would have changed it to application, but I had that whole story in my head. It was kind of bugging me. But anyway, question. Now, It's interesting that Jesus doesn't give them an exact explanation of how resurrection works, right? Rather, verse 26, he simply introduces them into the God that they need to trust in. Now, this is big. So, 
Here is God, not the God of your assumptions, but the God of the Bible. The good, just, loving, powerful God of the resurrection. And God does this often in his word. For example, the virgin birth. We, we're not told uh, all the mechanics behind a virgin birth. It's kind of just declared. The same thing at the, the story of creation. God's word just says God spoke and it happened. We're not given the behind the scenes, a minutia of the thing. But we are given God. We're given a picture of God who creates and who loves. And that revelation of God says, will you trust me? Will you trust me? We want explanations and God will give us some, but he gives us all of him. He gives us himself. So the Sadducees come trying to examine Jesus intellectually, and Jesus turns their gaze back on themselves, and he examines them spiritually, right? Through their wealth and their intellect and their conservative ways, they tried to understand the world. They tried to understand God. They tried to understand the future, and it's failing them. It is failing them. Now, I want you to think about Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if death, death ends everything and there is no resurrection, uh, the Christians, we just should be miserable people, right? We can say with confidence, the Sadducees, no matter what, they were miserable. I mean, yeah, they had their sedatives and money and power and, you know, the good books and all that kind of stuff, but that just covers their pain. Again, if only in this life we have Christ. If there's nothing coming after this, We are to be pitied. We should be home eating donuts, lots and lots of donuts. So let me just end like this. Here's my question. If all there is is now, then why wouldn't life be futile? And why wouldn't death just mock us all the the time we're able to understand death? We would just be hounded by it. No, any intelligent person would have to think this through. A couple of weeks ago, we learned from Jean-Paul Sartre. He was an atheist. He was um, an existentialist. Actually, he started the movement. And he was reflecting on his own morality. He didn't know it. He's writing his diary. He's like one month from his death at 80 years old. And this is what he writes. The idea that there is no purpose, only personal petty ends for which we fight our little revolutions, but there's no goal for mankind. One cannot think such things. They tempt you consistently, especially if you're old and think, oh, well, I'll be dead in five years at the most. In fact, I think 10, maybe not, maybe five. In any case, the world seems ugly, bad, and without hope. There you go. I want to have hope, but my hope needs a foundation. One month later, he dies. Pretty sure he didn't find Jesus. I mean, that's existentialism. That's life built around only for now and only around the self. That's what you'll get. Did he find his hope? Again, probably not. But what did Paul say? If only in this life we have oh, hope, we are of most men miserable. Can I ask you, be honest, don't speak it out loud. Are you miserable? Are you miserable? Do you have your list of things and people who make you miserable? Really? That's it? That's why you're miserable? You see, if the Sadducees knew the power of God, if they knew the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, They would be looking forward, Hebrews 11, to to that city whose builder and maker is God. They would understand there's so much more past this. If they knew the scriptures, they would know what to look for past death. Hey, we're all getting older. The, The frailty of life is a given. The reality of death, a given. And the answer to that isn't, well, let's just live it up now. No, that's the fall of materialism, the emptiness of it. 
Loved ones, the genuine Christian who believes, who trusts in Christ, who knows something of God's transforming power, who has on some level begun to, to dig into God's word, meditate upon the word, we have been empowered to give an answer to those who ask for the reason for the what, for the hope that we have. So say whatever you want to say about Christians. The one thing which will mark us is that we are people of hope. Because that's the distinction that the New Testament makes between the believer in Christ and those outside of Christ. Listen to your Bible. At one time, we were without God and we were without hope in the world. Ephesians 2.12. 1 Peter. We have been born anew to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that in our conversion and in the truth of the resurrection, the pivotal point is what? It is the death of and resurrection of Christ. Without it, I don't care how religious you are, I don't care how pious you are, how awesome, how spiritual you are, how wealthy, how smart, you are without hope. You are miserable if you don't have Christ. So there's an empty tomb. Because what the empty tomb does, it shouts to us a lot of things. But one of the things it shouts is that the best is yet to come. Right? C.S. Lewis, there are better things ahead then we leave behind all because of Christ. So this is, this is uh, the application. As a Christian, we should have a healthy sense of, I am so hopeful in this life. But we should also have this kind of rumbling discontentment, right? This life isn't good enough, right? And that should animate us to at least long for heaven, and hopefully long for other people to want to be part of that same heaven, right? Think of it this way. A bird in the cage might say, well, this is a swell cage. You know, I got a little thing here. I got a swing here, a bell. It's great, but I sure would like to fly out of the cage, right? If they just open the door, I'd go out. Or how about this one, a monkey at the zoo? Remember the cartoon? The monkey steals the zookeeper's keys, And what does he do? He goes around to each cage and he opens up the cage and the good cartoons, what happens to all the animals? (sighs) They come rolling out there because they know that's not how they're supposed to live. There's something better outside these boundaries. And loved ones, unless a person is tied too tight to the world, that same longing should be in us. I love my job, I love my wife, I love my husband, I love my life, kids, friends, but but I am looking for a city, right? Right? I'm looking for a city. I'm looking for a better place. I'm looking for life that is so much more life than I have it now, even on my best day. Ed Ditteron Judson, he's a famous missionary. He's two quotes that I absolutely love. One of which says, when Christ calls me home, I will go with the gladness of a schoolboy bounding away from school, right? It's 3.30, 3.50, whatever the time. The bell rings, out the door. You see, he knew the scriptures. He knew the power of God. He He knew that there was an open door waiting. And that door then at his death would open at last. So I'm gonna end like this. You see there in verse 41, the poor widow, we're gonna get to her, Lord willing, in a few weeks. The poor widow gave everything she had to God. This is how I pictured her in my mind with the Sadducees. The Sadducees see her giving all her money to God. They come up to her and they go, oh, honey, 
You know, you, you don't have any money. Take something back. Don't give like that. Here's a response. Sweetheart, <laughs> I know I don't have any money. It's okay. I have God. And I know him. And I know his power. And that'll do. That'll do. Final question. If I told you I've started praying for 10 conversions a week in our context, would you laugh at me? Or would you join me? Do we know the scriptures? Do we know the power of God? Let's pray. Thank you for your attention. Father, we can say one trillion things about you. But the one thing that we cannot say enough is that you are good, that you are loving, that you are gracious, you are truthful, and you are powerful. Help us to believe hard in and to frame more and more of our life now and life future under those truthful headings. Now to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world be glory, power, and authority forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You dismiss. I'm going to hang around here if you have a question or two.